So freaks, it's your boy Marty here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I sat down with Ethan Vera, hash rate merchant at Luxor Mining Pool, to talk about a bunch of things uh, pertaining to Bitcoin mining specifically. We talked about how uh, pools get shares from individual miners, how they divvy up that reward, the fees that they're taking, uh, uh, futures products that can help miners hedge, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, this episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by our good friends at the Cash App. Please excuse my son and niece in the background. We got a loaded, loaded family uh, time here. And the Cash App's for families too. You got the Cash App downloaded on every family member's phone. They can have one. My niece and son don't have phones yet; they're too young. But uh, when they're old enough, they will be downloading the Cash App because it allows you to stack Sats, send Sats, receive Sats, and you can DCA into Sats as well. Set it and forget it. You can buy uh, Sats daily, weekly, biweekly, uh, and if you're doing that, if you're DCAing into it, make sure you're sending those stats to the personal storage at the end of the day. This is the revolution of Bitcoin. It allows you to take custody of your digital bearer asset. Make sure you're doing that after you stack stats on the Cash App. Uh, if you're tired of stacking stats or if you prefer to stack slivers of stonks, you can also do that via Cash App investing if your favorite stonk is a little too, a little too, a little bit expensive a little out of your price range. You can buy as little as $1 via Cash App Investing. And because this is all connected to your bank account, there are no four to five day waiting periods. You can start investing today. The Cash App may even be your bank account. You can get an account number and a routing number and get your paychecks direct deposited into your bank account. Uh, Cash App Investing is a subsidiary square and member SIPC. As always, make sure you use the code StackingSats when you download the Cash App. You're going to get $10 and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. <coughs> Download the Cash App today. Enjoy this episode with Ethan. Very, very informative, uh, incredible conversation. Take care. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday morning, where my guest is at. And we uh, we are here to talk about everything Bitcoin mining, from Bitcoin mining pools to uh, hash rate futures contracts to the supply chain of miners. I'm very excited uh, to be sitting down with Ethan Vera, hash rate merchant at Luxor Pool. How uh, how you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me on, Marty. Uh, been listening to your podcast since uh, the first time I got into crypto, so uh, extremely excited to be on. Yes, and I butchered the name of your company. It's Luxor Mining. Uh, you guys run a mining pool and do a bunch of other stuff. You just launched uh, a data website um, with some incredible data sets that we'll get into. Um, very happy again. I'm very happy to be sitting down with you. You're somebody that I've been getting more familiar with over the last what three to six months, particularly as um, We've sort of been opening up what we're doing at Great American Mining and getting into uh, more sort of focused conversations with people in the mining industry. I think your insight and what you guys are doing at Luxor and the um, 
sort of skill set and background you bring from a financing perspective and, and market making perspective at Goldman is very interesting. So just to start, why don't you tell us what you're doing before Luxor and how, and how you came to, to join that team and, and start selling hash rate. <laughs> Merchanting uh, hash rate. Uh, yeah, so like, like you mentioned, uh, my background's mostly uh, prior to mining was in financial services. So uh, spent a bit of time in asset management at RBC, a bank up here in uh, Canada uh, on the public equity side. And then uh, headed over to Goldman Sachs to do some investment banking uh, in San Francisco and Hong Kong. Uh, most of the time was spent in Hong Kong doing cross-border uh, M&A, so helping uh, North American companies buy Chinese and Asian assets and, and vice versa. Um, really, uh, was, that was kind of my first exposure to crypto and blockchain too. I was on the, the blockchain team there. Um, there wasn't a lot of work being done at Goldman in regards to uh, like investment banking in crypto because of how new the industry is. But we started really looking at the space uh, back in 2017 and, and 2018 um, as some of the companies started listing uh, to go public, companies like Bitmain. Uh, so that's really when we got dragged in uh, at Goldman. Uh, for Luxor, uh, we, we started the company about three years ago out of college. We were all really fascinated by Bitcoin at the time. And the thing that really uh, stuck out to us about Bitcoin was that there's uh, no longer a century planned Fed. Uh, no Fed that can decide you know, how much money to print and which companies get to win. You know, you pointed that out on your newsletter this morning, uh, money flowing from small businesses uh, during this, you know, uh, COVID situation to the large enterprises like Amazon. Um, and so, you know, in the Bitcoin model, anyone with a machine, uh, internet and electricity can take part in this new, more uh, equitable minting process. Miners are essentially kind of the federal bankers of the future in a more uh, just system and transparent one. Um, so with, with that kind of... Um, interest in mind, we really were thinking, okay, what kind of businesses can we build in this space? And uh, we built a mining pool, which is exactly, um, you know, a, a pivotal part of, of that ecosystem. Uh, every day we have thousands of miners that sell us their hash rate for around 98% of the expected value of the hash rate. Uh, we then take that hash rate, uh, build blocks with it, submit it to the network and get paid as a result. So effectively Luxor is a uh, as it currently stands, as a wholesale buyer and refiner of hash rate. Um, as we move forward and, and the team grows, we're working on uh, making more transparent liquidation platforms for miners um, and, and thinking through hash rate-based derivatives, as well as uh, you know adding uh, data insights, which you mentioned earlier too, as well. Yes, I misspoke earlier when I said you're selling hash rate. You were buying hash rate. A little mixed up there. Um, so let's dive into the dynamics of a mining pool. Like, um, how, like, how does your business model work? You said you're, you're buying it from, um, miners for the 98 and a half percent expected value of the hash rate. So you guys are getting what, one and a half percent, uh, around there from, uh, you're taking that off the top just for coordinating and pooling this hash so that they can get a, a, a more consistent payout. Exactly. Um, and that's really the reason miners uh, will sell hash rate to a mining pool versus self-mine is because they don't want to deal with the luck variant. Uh, running a pool, I know how much uh, mining luck really sucks. 
and uh, it can be painful in times, especially where your costs are set, your electricity bill. Uh, but if your revenue is unpredictable, you could get into a tough uh, economic situation there. So that's why miners join or sell their hash rate to a mining pool. Um, mining pools really are just uh, buyers of hash rate. They buy up hash rate from uh, individual miners and then they sell it to the network. So uh, you can think of them really as a middleman between a producer of hash rate and the end consumer, which is the Bitcoin network or you know other proof of work chains. Um, in this case, like mining pools have historically, uh, they've been around for about seven years. Slush pool created the first ever one uh, just over seven years ago. Um, and since then it's been evolving pretty rapidly. Now 95% or so of the industry works on what's called like a pay per share method where you're paying on the expected value and you as the pool are uh, going out and actually making the actual value. So your spread is between the expected value and the actual value. It's kind of like a blackjack table in a sense where over the long run, as the house, we know our odds are set, we're going to make that spread. But in the short run, there's going to be huge fluctuations where uh, the, the mining luck is all over the place and we could be down a lot or we could be up a lot. Yeah. So let's dive even further into mechanics. You mentioned shares there. So each individual miners is, is sending shares to your pool. What does that mean by sending shares? Uh, and, and how do you calculate that? And then um, basically calculate... Uh, each individual miner's sort of percentage of, of the payouts? Yeah, so mining machines produce uh, hashes. So they're running through the, the hash function, SHA-256. Um, but some of these machines produce, uh, well, all of them produce trillions of, of hashes a second. Um, so if you're looking at, you know, Bitmain S9, that's 13.5 trillion hashes a second. As a, as a mining pool, we don't want to accept 13 and a half trillion uh, hashes per second. We couldn't. I mean, our server cost would be uh, 10 million. Uh, so what we do is we, we set a, a minimum difficulty called a share target. And basically, uh, only once your hash rate beats this, this target, then we accept it as a valid share. And, and the goal is that you as a miner, you're only submitting a share to us every five seconds. And so that we can constantly manage the amount of, of data coming into our servers. Um, so anytime you submit a valid share to us, we immediately credit you um, the expected value of that share. So the most simple uh, definition would be like, if you're sending us a lottery ticket and there's uh, the lottery is worth $100, there's 100 tickets outstanding and you're sending us one, we'll credit you $1 right away because that's the expected value of that share. Um, so as miners, they're just sending us shares every five seconds and we're just consistently crediting them based on the expected value. Yeah. That's fascinating how this all works and, um, how pools sort of naturally came together. You mentioned slush developing the first one seven years ago at this point. And I mean, it just makes sense for, for individual miners to, to contribute to a pool based on payout variability. And, um, so I guess that drives naturally into another question is these mining pool protocols right now i'm assuming you're using stratum your um original protocol or the most popular protocol slush pool and Brit, the brains team is working on launching stratum v2 and uh, the reason for doing that is sort of a piggyback on matt Corallo's better hash idea which we've talked about on this podcast quite a lot in the past um and, and essentially it its aim is to help decentralize uh, Bitcoin mining uh, a little bit further by allowing the individual miners within the pool to construct block templates. 
what are your views on how this could potentially work and, and how it would compare to, to the strata protocol you're using now? Yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating the work they're doing, uh, well, Matt and, and the brains team, uh, really, uh, before we don't jump into it, uh, you know, shout out to slash pool and, and brains team. Uh, they've been carrying a lot of the R and D in the mining space for a long time. Uh, so, uh, really hoping that they are still in a position, you know, financially that they can continue to do that. Um, and they've been really great for the ecosystem. Uh, I guess, uh, there's a quite a few considerations that come with Stratum V2 beyond, uh, the job negotiation part, like efficiency and stuff, but, uh, definitely that decentralization of mining, uh, job negotiation is what is, is the primary focus and the really innovative aspect of it, uh, the better hash aspect. Uh, I think that's really cool. Um, I would like to see that to fruition. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to decentralize the power out of the mining pool's hands. Uh, but I think I'm generally bearish that it'll actually be adopted on a wide scale. And Slush Pool really only has four, four or five percent of the network right now. Ninety-four uh, percent of it's controlled by other Chinese mining pools, and I don't think any of those mining pools are incentivized to. Uh, use Stratum V2. So I think it'll be kind of a, you know, more of a, a fringe uh, a protocol at, at this stage, unless the, the brains team can find some way to financially incentivize the Chinese pools from adopting it. Yeah, it's the big question is in conversations with Matt, for better hash at least, I haven't talked to him about Stratum V2 in a little bit. In quite a while but uh at least when we we're talking about better hash he was under the impression that you probably need like five to seven percent of hash rate to bootstrap it um for the variability of payouts to be worthwhile uh and yeah that's, i guess that's the big question with strata v2 is how do you bootstrap it and um especially since it's a new protocol and i guess the biggest knock on strata v2 is is whether or not the individual miners uh within that mining pool protocol would be able to fine-tune um, their individual setups to uh, to get as many fees as possible. That's a big hold-up, correct? Yeah, exactly. It, it's kind of unclear what will happen. Like, maybe they're incentivized to mine empty blocks. We haven't really seen it at, at large scale yet, but you would think that putting it into the miners' hands would completely um, make it economical. So they're going to do whatever uh, economics makes sense. Uh, right now, mining pools already try and do that by including the highest uh, uh, value transactions, but uh, it's unclear if like that, that's the case where they just mine empty blocks and quickly uh, get them. But I, I think we'll see. Slush pools already launched it if you run their VOS Plus. So uh, we, we're going to start having some sample data to go by here to start observing uh, what effect it has on minor decisions and how many actually use it. You know, it's it's only an option, right? So many miners yeah. actually probably will, will not do anything. They just want to plug and play. And maybe the the real benefit of it is just in situation where somebody like CZ wants to reorg uh, <laughs> the chain and then, you know, he doesn't need to go and, and bribe Poolin and, and Bitmain uh, because it gets blocked by the miners. Uh, I, I don't know. Well, they, Binance has their own pool now, correct? Yeah, they're about, I think last time I checked, like 6%, six, 7% six, of the, the network hash rate. Yeah, and, but that whole fiat—not even a fiasco—it's just a 
it was more of a publicity stunt than anything in my opinion like i don't think cz could have done anything um he was talking about coordinating with miners but really at that point it would have been really hard to reorg the chain and um i think it a lot of people made a lot more of a stink than than was warranted i think it was all talk and and no substance to to the actual threat of doing it i agree the, the mining pool operators like pool and bitmain f2 pool there they're all well majority bitcoiners i guess there's some bitcoin cashers there too in bitmain's ranks but i don't think they'd go through with anything like this and that's really what makes proof of work so such a beautiful consensus um mechanism uh is that it economically incentivizes and aligns the actors from protecting the network you don't actually need responsible guardians to protect the network you just need people to be financially motivated and no company is going to go and, and attack something that they are invested in so i think the the company wide attacks on the network are actually very low uh, my concerns always more on the government which is the majority of tax in the world uh, come from the government so that's uh that's probably the area that keeps me up at night uh is how much hash rate uh is managed in china there's three pool operators that manage over 51% of the network in China. Uh, at any point in time, the CCP could uh, potentially go and seize those three individuals that all live in Beijing with their laptops and have over 51% of the network. And an attack on mining pools is actually, in my opinion, more likely than the attack on mining farms. Seizing mining farms would be pretty dirty. Like you have to go roll tanks down into Sichuan province and, and take over physical production of hash rate that's like a huge mess especially at a time where china is actively trying to attract foreign investment into their sectors like that's the last thing they want to do right now uh whereas a mining pool attack they could just quickly round up three individuals and pretty you know cleanly attack the network and that's pretty scary it is scary maybe that's why we need warrant canaries at the mining pool level so they can uh so the pool operators can warn their users if they've been compromised and those individual miners can move. That would be probably a boon for your business. You'd see miners in mass leave for for other pools like Luxor, but uh, yeah, like how much of the hash rate contributed to those pools in China is also within that uh, within the borders of China. I guess would be the next question. Yeah. It's often Not cited for- that like 65% of hash rate is produced in China, uh, but 95% is managed in China. So there's 30% of hash rate in the network that's produced in you know, CIS region, North America, Europe, South America, that's uh, produced out, you know, offshore, but then still managed by uh, mainland entities. Yeah, it's great. I, I've said this on a few episodes in the past, like considering the fact that China is a communist government it is pretty ironic and actually like very impressive to see the amount of entrepreneurial spirit uh, that exists in China around Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining particularly. Like you'd think um, the citizens of China wouldn't be first movers in this purely capitalistic market that is the Bitcoin network. But I mean, they put everybody else in the world to shame when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, uh, Chinese mining companies have done the most for the network they've created the best machines they've added the most hash rate they've secured the network you know the most out of any country so you know hats off to them um well 
I think uh, people forget like how uh, entrepreneurial the Chinese people can be. Like they were the creators of like gunpowder, literature, writing, like every, every, all the early like technologies were created by China. Um, they're really a, a powerful people if, if they're in the right environment. Uh, unfortunately, the CCP has really um, suppressed their innovation over the past 60, 70 years. Uh, and you can see that like if you pull up like a Wikipedia page on Chinese inventions past 70 years, there's like nothing. Like, it's, it's shameful. Um, maybe crypto mining, maybe like 5G is like the, the time where China will actually lead in technology advancement uh, in the past 70 years. But to date, there's been very little uh, innovation coming out of there. And I think that's mostly the fault of the government. They have very smart, intelligent people. Like, they just got to step out of the way and let them do their thing. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, very evident today, particularly when the UK stepped stepped away from the the uh i always pronounce it wrong Huawei. 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 um they stepped away from that contract they don't they don't want Huawei to come in and build their 5g network yeah the cfo is actually uh on house arrest about uh, uh one one district away from me right now really she lives in a mansion in vancouver with like an ankle monitor uh yeah in canada we uh we arrested her and then uh, China retaliated and, and arrested like a few Canadians, uh, put them uh, away. No one's ever heard, like, they've been living in like a dungeon pretty much. Uh, I, I wasn't aware of this story. Why did Canada uh, house arrest, put her on house arrest? Extradition law with the U.S. Uh, she broke U.S. Uh, uh, sanction laws and Canada has extradited. Like, we basically arrested her in our, in our airport. Uh, so we got in the middle between U.S. and China, uh, you know, the war. And so China's kind of, or Canada's kind of caught in the middle of it right now. Which is funny because we have so many Chi- uh, Chinese citizens here. Like Vancouver is pretty much uh, half Chinese at this point. Like Li Kaixing built uh, half the city. But now we're like uh, another enemy of China, I guess. Such weird times. Uh, it is, I mean, right, I mean, the rhetoric's only getting getting more heated particularly between the u.s and china right now um and yeah it does suck that the ccp gets in the way because as we're talking like the entrepreneurial spirit from the individuals within china is incredible especially in bitcoin but it is hard to do like to like and that that was going around yesterday too like the nba and the free hong kong stuff on the back of the jerseys like that type of overt censorship of american companies and american organizations via chinese pressures like that doesn't sit well with me at all so is there are we at a point where um we need to play hardball with china and sort of pull out from economic investment just to help the or not help the individuals i'm sure they already know it but to sort of put pressure on the ccp and bleed them out if you will I'm just speaking aloud right now. Yeah. Uh, if, you've, if you're into the Chinese-American relations, I'd recommend the book on China by Kissinger. Uh, he's like a, a student of history. And uh, he, he was kind of the, he was under Nixon and, and tasked with bringing back together China and the U.S. into good relationships. And in his book, he covers like every single external uh, country's uh, policy with China over the years. So... Uh, how they basically opened China up through the 
the uh, opium wars and, and got them to start trading with the outside world. I think a lot can be learned about the Chinese mentality uh, through studying that, that history. The Chinese really play a long-term game, kind of like uh, Sun Tzu, Art of War. Uh, the West is like, we see like very decisive points of victory, uh, you know, landing on D-Day or, or sacking uh, Berlin, uh, which can be replicated in, in the game of chess, which is a Western dominated game where, you know, you take the king and there's it's very hierarchy and there's very strong points of conflict versus the Chinese see uh, international policy is much more fluid than that in long term, where it's like a game of, um, you know, expanding territory, expanding influence and, and getting marginal um, areas of, of advantage, which is replicated in the game of Go, where you can win by just having like a slight advantage in it. You don't have to, you know, take the king or anything. So I, I think that book's just fascinating uh, when, when thinking through like how the Chinese government uh, does foreign policy. Yeah. I mean, it's become extremely evident this year, particularly 2020 has been uh, a year of chaos, but also of, of shining light on how this slow drip Chinese influence has infiltrated the U.S., particularly like the, the university system having a lot of paid professors that, that are working uh, on behalf of some Chinese institutions yet not uh, making uh, the universities they work, work for aware of that. Um, you know, just mentioned Howie uh, and the U.K., and they have the, the infrastructure projects in Africa and Italy and, and, and other sort of... Uh, uh, distressed countries and this whole pandemic with the lockdowns or some games with ventilators and, and, and uh, a lot of questions of the uh, positioning of, of China and, and, and how this benefits them because they're able to step in and offer aid um, during this pandemic and, and get more influence that way and then had Kyle Bass on the podcast a few months ago he was describing how we may be witnessing like reverse opium wars with the the fentanyl coming into the country and, and the control of our our medicine uh predominantly in china's supply chain it's very fascinating and it is two very diametrically opposed sort of views on the world and as a bitcoiner like the long-term thinking makes a lot of sense to me i mean i think a lot of the the vitriol and chaos that we're seeing in the United States right now in terms of the culture war is due to a an extended decades long sort of infiltration of of academic thought in our university system. Yeah, I agree with that. We're getting deep here. We are. Um, Ethan, this is Tales from the Crypt. We dive deep. I actually heard of a few mining farms getting uh, a supply of masks with their their ASIC rigs. I don't know if you guys got the same, but uh, I heard uh, What's Miner and even Canon were sending like uh, hundreds of masks with a, a few dozen machines. Really, I don't. Uh, I don't think our last order came with masks, but um, it'll be it'll be interesting to see if our next one does. Yeah, um, write a uh, free Hong Kong on them, and you get it. <laughs> Had to send them out of the country. Um, I hate to do this to break the flow of this conversation, but I'm an idiot. Forgot my laptop charger. I'm going to go grab that real quick. It should be 30 seconds. I'll be right back. No rush.
30 seconds on the dot. Wow, that was good. Um, but obviously we're on this conversation of the geopolitical situation between the East and the West, but let's bring it back to Bitcoin hash rate particularly. Like if 65% of hash rate is physically in China and then 95% uh, of control over hash rate is in pools or operators within China, how do we begin migrating this um, and distributing this more outside of Chinese borders? It's not even particularly here in America, um, but just, just globally. On the production level, uh, so that 65% number, I think naturally like about 10% of that will come from uh, over from China to the US in the next few years. And there's a lot of key drivers to that. Uh, a few are like, we actually have superior energy infrastructure here. There's this common misunderstanding that China has better and cheaper sources of electricity, which isn't entirely accurate. It's true that Sichuan and uh, you know, as cheap hydropower is they overbuilt it and Shenzhen uh, also has an abundance of power, but their costs are still at minimum, like two to three cent USD per kilowatt hour. Uh, even, you know, in the height of rainy season, the U S uh, ha has more advanced electricity grid infrastructure, uh, that can be utilized, uh, for mining at, at low cost. And you're seeing that now with like the build out in Texas, it's a lot of people building out at like sub two cent. Also, you guys at GAM, like, uh, you know, what you guys are doing, uh, leveraging existing infrastructure resources, uh, I think that's super cool. So I think naturally, actually, uh, while China had a head start in that cheap electricity, we're actually going to catch up pretty quickly here. Some of the other, like, key themes, we could probably have a whole podcast on this, but the other, like, quickly key themes I would, I would point out are, like, longer machine life cycle. So it's less important now to plug it in within the first two weeks of it being made, which benefits US companies and overseas ones. Um, I think one that's not talked about a lot is the professionalization of the industry. Uh, historically, like it's been incredibly unprofessional. Like if you wanted to get involved in mining, you had to like go to a manufacturer, you have no idea how they're pricing the machines, you don't know if they're actually going to get delivered at what time, maybe they mined on them themselves already. Um, there's no warranty for them, then you have to connect to a pool, you don't know if that pool stealing from you. It's incredibly like opaque. And so that's really kept North American institutional money on the sideline. We don't like dealing with that unprofessional level of an industry, whereas the Chinese are actually um, less risk adverse and they're comfortable dealing in, in that type of environment. So they've, they've been able to put in capital where uh, I think a lot of investors, uh, uh, at least in North America and the US have been kind of like sidelined because they're like, wow, there's all these things that are like really unprofessional. So the the manufacturers kind of getting their you know uh becoming more professional by like putting in warranties having more transparency on shipping that sort of thing that's going to help uh, as well as like hash rate liquidation and like no actually knowing uh where the value of your hash rate comes from i think that will help um so those are like some of the key themes i think like uh, th there's quite a few more but eventually like more hash rate is production is going to come to the us and uh, really outside of China, I think. Right, I agree. Um, and I, I think the point that the industry is just becoming much more professional is is very true. And 
just from conversations we're having at GAM, there is a lot of interest, particularly in the oil and gas industry, to figure out how to plug Bitcoin miners into their existing infrastructure. And um, more pools popping up, too, is, is good to see, like Luxor. And um, it'll be interesting to see if that uh, Laurentia pool can um, get off the ground as well. Uh, here in North America, we got Nova Block up in Canada as well. They're a North American pool. Um, that'll be interesting too. And you, you were, you alluded to the fact that in the past you wouldn't know if a mining pool was, was stealing some of your hash rate or not. How, how would that happen? And, and how would you know if it's happening or, or not know it's happening? It would really be done like not as much stealing hash rate, but not paying out as much as they should. Uh, so if we say we're going to pay you out 98% of the expected value and you're expecting that, uh, it would be quite easy for a pool to actually just pay out like 96% or 97%. And there's even sneakier ways uh, pools can do it, where when you connect miners to them for testing, it has the correct pool fee and it's paying you out the right amount. But as your operations go on, slowly like basis points uh, get tacked on as you've already kind of transitioned miners. So it can get quite sneaky. Um, there are ways to measure like, or is a pool paying you out correctly for your hash rate, but it's extremely hard to do. You need sophisticated programs to do it. So some of our bigger miners run it uh, with us and we help them set that up. But for the average individual, it's just not feasible. Um, really, this is like, if you take a step back and look at how hash rates traded right now, miners are sellers of hash rate and mining pools are buyers. It's an OTC marketplace where you as a miner, you need to go negotiate with a mining pool, usually for a special fee. If you're a sub size, you know, you go to F2 pool, you go to pool and you go to slash, like, hey, what fee can I get? I have a hundred petahash type thing. You engage in an OTC transaction where you're doing one-on-one -on -one negotiation with them and then just trust that they're paying you out a, a good amount. They quote you like a fee on Telegram or, or WeChat, but you don't really know what that fee is based on. Um, people can have like different bases for what they're charging that fee on. So the current structure is like all wrong, in my opinion. It, it was fine for the beginning of the industry, but I think we need to move to uh, an ecosystem where there's more transparency on hash rate. And that's really like the idea of creating hash rate marketplaces where instead of going and negotiating with F2 Pool 101, you go to an exchange and F2 pool has to bid on your hash rate. You can be like F2 pools bidding 8.1 cents a terahash for 500 petahash, pool ends bidding, you know, uh, 8.05 for 300 petahash. And that's how the, the, the market can be formed. And then you as a miner, you really know, okay, this is, I'm getting paid 8.1 cents a terahash because it's in an open marketplace and it can see the order book. Yeah. And I guess that's the huge question right now is how's that market going to get made? Um, who's going to be the exchange or the platform that sort of bridges these two sides and creates an order book that has enough liquidity um, and interest to, to actually facilitate this type of market. Um, there's a lot of debate back and forth whether or not um, this will happen in the next three to five years. What, what are your opinions on in who might this market maker be and, and how uh, these order books may develop? I, I, I think and hope that it'll be a few different people uh, and there'll be a few different exchanges. Uh, hopefully there'll be like a US-based exchange. Uh, there'll be a European and a couple Chinese ones similar to like crypto markets today. 
uh, I think that's healthier for the ecosystem if there's multiple exchanges uh, for hash rate. But like you said, like it is tough because mining pools have long benefited from how opaque the industry is. So they're not uh, very incentivized to go and change an ecosystem that they benefit from and profited from. Uh, so it, it, it needs to be done in a way that incentivizes them to use the exchange and start participating. Uh, maybe it takes five years, but I, I would hope that it, over the next like year and a half, uh, people will start realizing this. I think profit switching uh, is really kind of the first area that's going to change people's minds on hash rate. You start getting into this era where you realize that hash rate itself has value and can be used for multiple purposes. Of course, like for SHA-256, it would be used in majority cases for mining Bitcoin, but it can be used for other things like mining, you know, BCH, mining uh, Digibyte, you know, dozens of other currencies. Um, and so you get into this idea where hash rate itself uh, can be bought at higher than a PPS rate. And at the end of the day, most miners are profit driven. So if you can sell your uh, hash rate at 101% Bitcoin PPS rate, that's pretty impactful for a, a business that's operating at the margin. So uh, I think as we transition to an era of profit switching, it's going to become more clear how then that goes to uh, an exchange where not only are you selling to uh, Bitcoin and other crypto networks, but you're also selling to other buyers too. A multi-coin future is... Uh... So how, how viable is that in the long term, do you think? Yeah, is there, because I often wonder this, a conversation of zombie chains and dead chains and do blockchains ever die? It's a big one John Seth and DeRose used to talk about, um, pops up. And so with this profit, profit switching model, you're sort of dependent on these networks having value and adoption and longevity. Uh, into the future again if you're um uh somebody who believes that bitcoin will be winner take most to all at the end of the day like does that make sense long term in your opinion how how does that sort of play out i'm of the belief that bitcoin will uh take most in terms of its use case which is really like store value and really like a, a decentralized currency. But I also see Bitcoin as religion. And uh, as any religion, there's always kind of like an antichrist. So right now that's BCH and BSV. Maybe those chains fail and probably uh, one, at least one of them will. But then there'll be like another Craig Wright in, in five years that creates, I don't know, uh, BTTC or, or, or something in that nature, right? Like there's always going to be like an anti-Bitcoin. Um, regardless if these ones fail or not. So I, th I think like long-term Bitcoin will be 95% or more of SHA-256 hash rate for sure, but there'll always be these kind of smaller chains that exist. And, and this type of future may actually uh, lead to the demise of some of these smaller chains. If there's like a period of profit switching, that could really hurt smaller chains. And then if there's a period of uh, where most hash rate is traded on exchanges, it makes these smaller chains incredibly vulnerable uh, to attack because uh, you don't have to invest in, in uh, infrastructure to buy machines. You can just buy hash rate, uh, buy a few exahash and attack Bitcoin cash pretty easily. And if 
you manage to put in like a, a very levered short position, it could make sense economically for you to do so. Of course, then you have to deal with like, how do you actually, um, you know, get the coins out and stuff. Uh, but I, I think it's possible. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the game theoretical situations that come into play when you're thinking about hash rates and, and moving it between chains and attacking chains is is a fascinating world to fall down and, and yeah i mean to, to be successful number one you have to have those futures markets so it's like is there even like a bsv futures market could you really attack that profitably is there a B? I don't know are they on bitmax i know bcash is but i don't know about bsv i mean if there is i'll probably go after this pot and short it but <laughs> and i think this could get into a cool period where like an exchange is the one who usually gets attacked by these double spends so an exchange would actually be then motivated to go and buy more hash rate than the attacker. Um, and you get into this interesting game theory where they're just upping each other's bid on, on the amount of hash rate uh, to either attack the exchange or protect the attack. And eventually it gets to a point where they're both negative and they both lose a ton of money. And the only person who wins are the miners who are the ones selling the bullets. Yeah, and I guess... So we're we getting that there's an argument to be made that this profit switching could actually be beneficial for Bitcoin in the long run because it can provide miners with more profits, which they could reinvest in the security of the network. I think so. Uh, I think it's just ult ultimately a better and more transparent way to, to sell hash rate. So uh, institutions that want to enter the space in, in North America, like anyone with capital, I, I don't just mean like large corporations because uh, I think there's so much more to that than in Bitcoin mining but anyone like with capital that wants to invest like dealing with the uh, OTC marketplace with mining pools right now is kind of daunting and so I do foresee like having better uh, liquidation platforms as a good catalyst for bringing in more money into mining securing the network more and bringing more hash rate to the US mm -hmm. so in terms of helping this market develop and again, it's incentives. These pools have to be incentivized to to actually participate in these order books and, and sort of uh, give up reins of control of uh, their individual order books to to a larger exchange. Is there uh, a financial? Is there financial incentives of being more transparent? Do you think uh, individual miners pointing their hash at pools will look at transparent pools and uh, find that? They're, they're more profitable ways because of their transparency is there is that is that uh, part of your thesis at all i think mining pools that develop profit switching algorithms will be at an advantage in the future because they'll be willing to pay more for hash rate than other mining pools and this could be like a reason why north american pools take off more because uh historically like you mentioned earlier like china's dominated mining but the West dominates quant funds. So really what profit switching is doing is bringing that quant aspect into mining. Uh, so there could be like, you know, a trading desk in Chicago that runs a very sophisticated profit switching algorithm that can suddenly generate more uplift than someone like, you know, Antpool. And they'd be willing to pay more for hash rate. And in an environment like that, they could actually gather more hash rate on a trading desk than, you know, a giant mining farm in, or a giant mining pool uh, you know, giant in, in uh, China. So I think uh, people who are smarter about that will benefit in the future. And I'm fascinated to see like who the new types of players are in that future system.
Yeah, and that drives us to an interesting question of how does this affect the cadence of block production? Um, if you're switching, profit switching, with a material amount of hash rate, what does that mean for the 10-minute the block target uh, over time? It really depends, like, how many people are profit switching and how dumb those algorithms are. If you if you take, like, an extreme example where 100% of the network is profit switching and the algorithms are very unsophisticated, they switch to Bitcoin Cash when it's 5% more profitable to mine than Bitcoin. You know, that's the only factor they look at. Well, if Bitcoin Cash goes over 5%, technically, like, what, 120 exahash would, would switch over to Bitcoin Cash to, to mine that block. Um, and then there'd be zero left on the Bitcoin network until Bitcoin Cash uh, difficulty adjusts, and then uh, it would switch back. Uh, so in a, in that very very extreme example, which I think is highly unlikely, uh, that would have a huge effect on block time uh, for Bitcoin network, uh, and you know would be very damaging. I think uh, those algorithms will be a lot smarter than that. Uh, we we run a, a smart switching algorithm right now, and uh, we really try and consider like what are the market factors and like what's going to be the most profitable to switch to on a post switch basis, not on a pre switch basis. So. I'm hoping that uh, companies can develop more sophisticated ones than that. Um, but it, it'll be curious. To, I'm curious to see it. I think it'll have a larger impact on the smaller chains like Bitcoin Cash, BSV. Those chains could run into some problems as all the hash rate comes on, jacks up the difficulty to an extremely high level, then leaves, and then leaves the existing miners to find some really bad block. And those miners, like besides maybe like Roger Ver's mining farms and uh, Craig writes like they don't want to stay on the. Everyone else does want to stay on the network. They're not going to mine very unprofitably. They're going to go to Bitcoin, so it'll just make that cycle even worse. Yeah, no, I, I'd imagine it would. It could potentially. That's what could be the demise of those networks if that scenario, very extreme scenario, played out. And it was well, actually I don't know what what uh Bcash is difficulty just. They changed it, didn't they? So it's. Isn't it like every 16 blocks or something like that now? I'm, I'm not a big Bcasher, and I don't, we don't run a pool for Bcash, so I don't uh, know too much about their proof-of-work algorithm, but I thought it was every day. Yeah, every, it might be every day. Maybe every 144 blocks, I think that's what it would be. Uh, I don't like changing the Bitcoin, like the original design. I think that like keeping it is what's so fundamental and important to it, but in reality, like the difficulty adjustment algorithm uh, for Bitcoin really sucks. Uh like 2016 blocks is just it's it doesn't make sense you see like uh chains like zcash doing it every block or even chains like komodo chain doing it interblock and it makes it much more efficient but i mean that's the beauty of bitcoin is that it doesn't change and it's it's a point of stability so 2016 blocks is way too long in your opinion i'm trying to think of of why satoshi chose that in the beginning um it's like two weeks. But isn't there advantages of two, 2016 blocks as well? I just see the, like, changing every block is, it's more fluid. And it takes away all these different issues. Like, okay, the mining death spiral is obviously a stupid uh, argument, but that would have zero weight if there was uh, adjustment, like, inner block 
for every block. Um, potentially there's benefits of like 2016 I'm not thinking of, but I, li I like the inner uh, uh, block changes. It's called like adaptive proof of work. But maybe Satoshi didn't envision uh, what this like mining ecosystem would, would, would build. Um, you know, we're, we're moving into an era of profit switching and, and hash rate exchanges. It hasn't really been done in a, in a big way in the past uh, seven years since Slush Pool was, was first built. So this industry is going to go through rapid transformation that no one really predicted, not even the pool operators a few years ago. It's, uh, I think it's going to happen regardless if, you know, one individual wants it to or not. It's just like, it's, it's going to be fascinating to watch uh, all, all the different like uh, repercussions it has. That drives drives us towards a, an interesting point that a lot of people, especially on Bitcoin Twitter, like to make. Like, oh, I don't know how, how I feel about the financialization of Bitcoin, particularly. Like, are we just re recreating what we're trying to get away from? And as somebody who sort of understands finance, I, I mean, I think these products are necessary if we want Bitcoin to succeed as, as much as, as we believe it can. Um, but what would you say to the hardcore, um, well, I mean, it's not even hardcore, but Bitcoin doesn't succeed if it doesn't, uh, suit the use case of, of black market money, but with people, uh, who are hyper-focused on, on that use case is Bitcoin as, um, black market money. Like how could you quell any fears of traditional financial institutions and, uh, sort of familiar financial products coming to the Bitcoin world. I, I don't know if I'd ever be able to convince, you know, the very, very hardcore Bitcoiners um, that some centralized services are beneficial to the ecosystem. But my general view is that like the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is that it's censorship resistant at, it, at its base level. And so really like we don't make any changes to the coin itself. That's a beautiful thing, but there are going to be centralized uh, companies that are building on top of it that will add to the security of it, the usability of it, the, the adoption of it. Those central centralized companies are kind of a necessity because uh, we're not in a place right now where decentralized uh, products or companies provide a better user experience than centralized. You can't really build uh, a lot of these products like a hash exchange or hash rate derivatives decentralized that's going to be a better user experience than centralized. It just doesn't exist yet. And so it, maybe in the short term, like the next five to 10 years, all these services are, are centralized and it adds to the security of the Bitcoin network. Um, but then hopefully that later down the line, I'd, I, I hope the same vision as them that in 10 years, they become more decentralized once uh, we can figure out the user experience, which like at the end of the day, that's all people care about, right? Like, can you build a better UX? And so if you have like a, a hash rate exchange that's decentralized, doesn't have market making, uh, there's like no liquidity, like the, the product's just not good. No one's going to use it. If you're going to want to go to a, a centralized exchange. So uh, I know I'm kind of like dancing around the question here, but I think like these products are, are fine in the short to midterm. Like we're building better security for the Bitcoin network. Yes, they're centralized, but eventually, hopefully they don't, uh, you know, they become more decentralized. No, and I would agree. I think decentralization and being as distributed 
as possible are ideals that you strive for and, and you, you uh, get closer to those ideals incrementally. And then as somebody who's been diving down the mining rabbit hole pretty intensely over the last two years and somebody works at a company that's mining Bitcoin, like the capital expenditure that goes into building out these these mining operations is, is pretty considerable. And so if we want hash rate to keep going up exponentially and people to, to invest in buying miners and uh, pointing their hash rate towards the Bitcoin network, like these products probably need to exist if we want to take it to the next step. You need to be able to hedge the risk that you're taking in this initial CapEx expenditure because it is considerable and it is a huge risk. Exactly. And every other industry, like traditional industry, commodity producers can hedge their risk. So like what we're talking about isn't crazy. Like uh, there wouldn't be the oil industry there is today or the gold industry or any, you know, hog mix industry there is today if there wasn't futures and options and financial tools for those producers to hedge their risk. So we really need to get into a space where miners can hedge the value of their hash rate, the commodity which they're producing. And like you said, like, uh, Miners are making incredible amounts of investments, you know, sometimes millions of dollars. And if you're investing in a commodity that's very volatile uh, without a hedge, that's it's a very different investment than if you have hedged out your risks. The value of hash rate is about three times more volatile than Bitcoin price itself. So miners take a three times more volatile position than than holders of Bitcoin uh, just by the value of hash rate in a year's time. Uh, that's like a, that's a big risk to take. And it sidelines a lot of institutional and, and good capital in the U.S. So I think like building these hash rate based uh, hedging tools is going to be essential to North American adoption. No, I agree. And I guess let's get into the mechanics of hedging and how an operation would hedge their risks, particularly with hash rate futures. How do you envision um, miners using these markets to to hedge their operational risk? Yeah, there's, there's been a lot of talk of, of hedging in the past year and a half. Um, maybe I'll just set the stage before we jump into it. But the first approach people took was around like network difficulty. And you saw that with like PowSwap. I think Jack Mollers came onto your podcast to talk about it. Um, BitUda has done some difficulty-based uh, swaps. Now FTX has uh, exchange-traded difficulty products. Those products are actually uh, a little bit ill-conceived. Uh, they're actually not they don't work as a as a hedge for miners um, there's more than one input that goes into the the revenue that a miner generates and so hedging difficulty uh breaks in a lot of cases an example of that is like the march uh sell-off of bitcoin price the value of hash rate dropped 40 percent so miners lost 40 percent of their revenue if you as a miner tried to hedge your risk through uh, a difficulty uh swap or you know a future you're going to go uh, long difficulty, right? Because technically, if difficulty increases, your 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 revenue decreases. So that's the hedge position you take. But in March, you would have been double screwed. Your value of hash rate dropped forty percent, but difficulty also dropped, which means your your future position on difficulty also lost. So that's like that's one example, but it's broken like dozens of times already this year. So uh, while those difficulty products, I think, are interesting, they're actually not that useful as a hedge for miners. Miners produce uh, SHA-256 hash rate. That's what the machine actually produces, and that's what miners make their revenue in, is 
you know, dollars per terahash. So the only way to properly hedge uh, your operations is to do it on the value of hash rate itself. And uh, like, just like for simplicity, I'd call that like dollars per terahash per day. Yeah. And instead to hear that explanation, it makes a lot more sense, right? Because what are these machines producing? These hashes, uh, the difficulty is more variable and unknown more of a variable and an unknown than the amount of hash each machine can produce. Like you can easily predict that and no matter what the difficulty is. Exactly. Yeah. And that's how miners make revenue, right? Like you're, you don't care about the difficulty. You care about your dollars per terahash. Um, because difficulty could be up, but Bitcoin's also up and you're, you're fine. At the end of the day, like you, you care about your dollars, uh, for the, the commodity you're producing. Yeah. And, uh, no, and even, and that's, that's a, an example of this industry getting more sophisticated too, is, is honing in on the, the metrics and, um, the sort of data that you should be paying attention to and, and basing future decisions off of where it seemed really shoot from the hip wild west in the past, like you were describing, uh, sort of trying to negotiate with the hardware producers who you don't know whether or not they were running the machines or, um, had some hidden firmware that could over underclock them and, um, or just, uh, steal hash rate <laughs> straight up. Um, and so I guess that's another thing we get into is, is the, the efficiency of the hardware and, and the ability to under and overclock and, and make some firmware, um, tweaks to, to, to eke more out of each miners. Um, like, do you guys, I know, slush offers some some special firmware for s9s and are probably working on other models as well do you guys at luxor look at that and and try to provide that to your to your customers as well we uh we do for equihash being like zcash but i don't want to spend too much time talking about shit coins on your podcast so I'll, I'll put that in the back burner i think what slush Bowl is doing with with bos plus uh the firmware for the bitcoin miners is, is interesting it makes a lot of sense uh, to combine their mining pool stack with firmware and bundle it up and sell it as a package deal to miners. It's very attractive. Um, the firmware space has been probably on the topic of professionalism, the most unprofessional today. Like you're, you're looking at guys like uh, Alex Levin or Vinesh, like no name guys on Telegram that you like probably have never met in person and you're handing over like all your machines to their firmware. Um, and so people have been pretty skeptical of it to date. So. Uh, people like brains coming out with more professionalized uh, version of it, I think it's going to be very impactful, uh, both from a mining perspective, but also from uh, a general market. People look at like the hash rate levels right now, and they're trying to predict, okay, what's it going to be in 12 months? Well, if you're ignoring firmware, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice because firmware hasn't really penetrated China at all yet. They've been really skeptical of it, but it's, it's starting to gain uh, traction there. So, if all those Chinese miners start putting in firmware that overclocks their machines by 15, 20%, you could see another 20 exahash come onto the network from just firmware upgrades. And so if, if you're making a mining investment or you know, betting on future difficulty levels as an investor, you should probably take that into consideration. Yeah. And so let's take a step back here for the freaks who may be unaware of sort of the mechanics of the hardware and, and how the firmware interacts with it. What, what do you... What do we mean when we're saying um, add new firmware and over underclock? 
really what these companies are doing is they're breaking into the machine and putting custom firmware on it that's not the pre-configured manufacturer's firmware. The machine comes with generalized firmware from the manufacturer, but it doesn't allow you to do things like heavily overclock the machine, which is beneficial from a hash rate perspective, but also increases the risk of failure. Uh, so what these uh, firmware guys are doing uh, are basically breaking in, uh, creating custom firmware and overwriting it and allowing you to do things like uh, increase the amount of hash rate it produces, or in some cases like undervolting it and increase the increase the efficiency, which we see a lot of people doing with the, like, the older generation machines like the S9s. If you uh, undervolt it, you can get higher efficiency like joules per terahash, which means that it may still be profitable to run in low cost environments and save, you know, another six months of operation with them. So um, that's kind of the general take on firmware. I'm obviously not a firmware developer myself, but uh, that's kind of my finance uh, angle from it. Yeah, you, you jailbreak these machines and, and make them more efficient in one way or another. And that's what you'll, I mean, there's always these conversations, like the Alex Levin and what's the other guy's name? Finish. Yeah, they they really, it's really sketchy uh, in, in that in that regard. But if you talk to other miners, whenever a new um, model comes out, hopefully you have a, a developer on the team who can sort of break into it and, and try to play around with the firmware and figure some stuff out. Um, and, that, and it's crazy to think if, if you are successfully able to do that and you're considerable, um, you're of considerable size, uh, you could significantly increase hash rate without adding a single miner to, to the network, all things held equal. Yeah, a lot of the big companies uh, do do it themselves in-house. Uh, it takes a really smart person to build firmware. Like the Levins and Vineshes of the world, there's not a lot of them. They're geniuses, um, at least with firmware. Uh, that's probably why uh, they have low AEQ. And, you know, you see some of those Telegram chats where there's like death threats or like bounties being, being put out on Bitcoin Cash or like, uh, I think one of them threatened to go stab the other one in the next mining conference. Um, it's the firmware telegram chats are probably a dark place to, to be probably the darkest area of mining as a whole. There's some dark areas too, but they're getting brighter. They're getting brighter. Um, I'm yeah. confident. I, I mean, I'm excited too. Cause when you, when you think about, there's a bunch of things going on right now at the same time in the Bitcoin mining industry. Uh, from a maturation perspective, we've talked about the hedging products. Obviously, not fully fleshed out, not fully brought to market, but that ball's rolling. And then, what I'm really excited about, from our perspective, is you're going to get like I'm very confident, like institutional uh, money will come to invest in mining infrastructure in North America, but then what comes with that like you were describing like the quants and the profit switching um that'll come and then from an engineering perspective like once the oil and, and gas sort of petroleum engineers and chemical engineers and electrical engineers start putting their minds towards this stuff i think we're going to see uh, things that we can't even fathom in terms of efficiencies and creativity with with using this hardware I agree. We're, we're only just now unlocking the potential of the West 
uh, into mining. So uh, very excited to see how this goes. Yeah. Um, we got through all, your whole list. Ethan sent me over like a list of, uh, of topics to cover. I, I'm surprised we hit all of them already, except for the last one, which is like getting rig data, um, like pulling data from the miners and, and sort of uh, shifting priorities based on that. Um, what are your, what are your views on this? For us, like the hash rate index project, uh, which is like a Luxor spinoff and data website, it was really just a play for us to help professionalize the industry. Um, there's long-term benefits to us, like helping the industry become more professional beyond like monetizing a data site. Like our end goal is to like bring in like new types of uh, players into the market in the US and, and this data site will hopefully help them get in. So the rig price index is like one aspect of that. Uh, like you're talking about a GAM, like when you're looking at machine prices, uh, it's really hard to determine like when to buy the machine, if it's properly priced, like how does that change over time? It's, it's very daunting because these manufacturers are so opaque with everything, pricing, uh, like shipping delay, pretty much everything involved in the process. So we figured like if we can aggregate uh, all these uh, machine prices over time, it could drive some interesting insights that would help miners uh, make investment decisions, um, you know, give sanity checks on like dollars per terahash right now or where the, the market's standing in terms of CapEx. Um, it also helped like uh, different types of players like financiers who are now taking uh, ASICs as collateral. Uh, ASICs are a crazy collateral to take. Um, it's unlike any traditional leasing business. Like these ASICs can fluctuate in value like 70% in a year's time, or even in like a few weeks, they actually, uh, they could. So um, being able to use historical data could help them uh, determine like, okay, how do we actually um, value this collateral on an ongoing basis? Like we re revisit every two weeks and like, how do we mark this down as time goes on? Um, so. I'm probably just listing off a couple, but I think there's going to be dozens of use cases of this data uh, for, for people that are looking to kind of expand into mining. No. Thank you for putting this site together and gathering this data. Because like we were discussing before we hit record, that's, and what you're just alluding to right now is, uh, again, as we're trying to raise money and scale, it's one of the big questions we get is, is what's what collateral are you going to use? It's going to be the gen sets and the miners and the miners even worth collateral. So just to even begin to broach that conversation, you need to have historical pricing data on the machines, um, pair that with price of Bitcoin and difficulty and hash rate at any given point in time and sort of back out and say like, Hey, prove that you can buy miners at certain points of time. And yes, they may be, uh, not the cheapest that you could ever get them, but you could still be profitable. Um, and that data just hasn't existed up to this point. I know Leo Zhang at Annika Research uh, in one of his most recent blog posts was able to, to get pretty granular historical pricing data on S9s. But beyond that, I haven't seen anything too robust. So to see you guys start putting these data sets together and, and making them public is huge. Yeah, well, uh, we appreciate guys like you uh, for supporting us in this initiative. Uh, it, it wouldn't be anything if people didn't actually find it useful. So uh, it makes me really happy to hear that. Um, and 
yeah, for listeners, it's it's all publicly available data. So you can head to hashrateindex.com and just uh, you know take the, the visualizations uh, for different efficiency buckets of, of rigs and uh, use that data as you as you wish. Yeah. What else do you got? So this is an MVP. What what's your what's your long term vision for this um, for this data site? It's pretty user driven right now. Like we just want to build cool shit that miners like like so if you have like things you want built or want to see like let us know and we'll try and build it um right now we're working on uh, a few different things uh one like the asic reviews so steve barber from upstream data he reviewed the s9 uh it was like one of the most amazing reviews i've ever read it it was crazy i mean uh, sleeping under your sleeping in uh with your hash rate board under your under your pillow yeah we're (laughs) He was trying to decide the title between like he was trying to rate the S nine like uh, the title either one ASIC to rule them all or like the AK forty seven of ASICs. So that was probably the toughest uh, decision he had to make. Well, it's and again, it gets back to ASIC life cycles and, and the future of the hardware. The S nine, love them or hate them, Bitmain, uh, it is an incredible machine that is still profitable to this day for some people and um that's why full disclosure we're bullish on on um micro bt and what's miners because the designer of the s9 co-founder of that company um and so how do you think moving forward as these asics become commodified like how how long do you see these these life cycles extending so right now yes nine's what on your 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 four right four four and a half years about yeah um i think you got to pick good machines like the what's minor you know like the, the machines you're picking i think are, are good horses to bet on um not every machine is going to last four years like if you buy the latest like canon machine i, I don't know I, I don't know how long that's gonna last maybe a few months um but I think there could be some machines as chip technology slows down that you start to see four or five year uh, timelines and, and even going further than that as chip sizes decrease. And as Steve highlighted on his uh, review on, on Hashrate Index, really the S9 was a pivotal time where you move from like a purely CapEx business to an operational business. And now you really gain competitive advantages in your, in your OPEX and, and how well you can run your operations as the machine life cycle uh, you know, gets longer and longer. Yeah. I mean, it was somebody, I forget who I wrote about in the bet, but somebody brought, uh, brought the original S nine announcement on Bitcoin talk.org, uh, to the surface a f- couple weeks ago. And it was hilarious seeing people's reactions to the, the original, um, announcement and pricing for the, for the ASIC compared to, what actually ended up happening at the time life cycles were what like six months max yeah and, and people were complaining about why would i ever invest in this if it's only gonna last six months most likely turns out to be like uh, by far the best asic purchase uh, of all time if you got it in 2016 <laughs> uh, you, you ran off like a bandit yeah no and it just highlights how early we are and, and would you would you define that as a mispricing of risk at that point in time from those miners who were questionable of it like how like 
do you think we'll see another instance where it's like, ah, oh, why am I going to invest in that if it's only going to last four years and ends up lasting like eight years or something like that? The mining market is not what it was four years ago. Not to say it can't return to that level if we see a huge price appreciation and uh, manufacturers can't catch up. But the economics are definitely different now than they were four years ago. I still think there's outsized returns for good operators like Yam or like Steve at Upstream Data to plug in machines regardless if they're new gen or um, old gen and still make outsized returns. I think Bitcoin mining is an incre incredibly good investment play, especially in the environment where people are investors are chasing yield. Um, I, I think it's going to be uh, still a very good investment for people to make if they can run operations efficiently. And that's like a big if because uh, there are really good operators out there, but there's also dozens of really bad operators. And to be honest, I was one of those bad operators in 2018. We opened a I was just going to say, <laughs> you got to tell your story. We, we invested in a mining farm in like run up of 2017, our Excel spreadsheet. I mean, I'll tell you, man, our Excel spreadsheet was awesome. If you looked at our spreadsheet, you would be like, this is going to be the best investment ever. Uh, and so that's when we put money in height of 2017, when network hash rate wasn't that high, Bitcoin price was obviously incredible. Uh, we bought a 40% stake in a, a 2.5 megawatt farm in Kansas city. Um, it didn't end up going so well. I mean, we were kind of all green to it. We didn't know what to do. I spent like uh, a month and a half living down in Kansas city with uh, Nick Foster from Kaboom Racks, like eating pizza hut every day, trying to turn this mining farm around. But like, we couldn't combat the, the Kansas city heat and like the underinvestment and like dealing with the entirely environment that none of us had ever built before. Yeah. Weren't you guys like holding up cardboard to have the airflow go a certain way? Yeah, I was I was blowing on miners to cool them down and <laughs> <laughs> pulling out pen and paper and custom like personally solving hashes to increase our hash output. I mean, but that's similar to like a lot of early mining stories. I mean, at Gam, like we were no smarter when we first. I mean, we're much smarter now than we were when we first got into it. when we first got into it. And I came in later, but. Todd was under the assumption that yeah, we just daisy chain these, plug them into a wall, it'll work. And it's like we bought dragon mints. Um, we've we've made some mistakes, but if you're willing to to tough it out and go on the journey of really understanding this market, which we're pretty confident we do now at this point, it it is worthwhile, especially considering the energy arbitrage opportunities that exist out there, particularly here in, in North America. Every miner earns their stripes at some point, and those stripes like will help you develop. Like a lot of the things we think about at Luxor in terms of hash rate derivatives and hedging out based on the value of hash rate, we wouldn't have recognized that if we didn't go through a mining farm failure ourselves and see like what are the main failure points of these operations. Um, we went into an environment where the value of hash rate was significantly higher than what we ended up with. So, I think like all of these things, really, they they add value in experience. So. As long as they're not too costly and they don't bankrupt you, they're not a bad thing. You can you can keep going on, keep building, and, and ultimately just build better and better products. Yeah. And I think that's actually another good point to, to drag into the sophistication of this industry is uh, it, feel like, it feels like, at least to me, that, that more miners, especially here in North America, are, are being open uh, with each other about not 
full details on operations, but hey, be aware of this, be aware of that. Maybe you can avoid some of these missteps that we made. I think the conversation is definitely more open than it has been in years past. It's amazing to see uh, how much miners are helping each other because technically it's a zero-sum game, but we're also heading into an environment where there's a lot of BD going on, uh, some consolidation, a lot of business partnerships. So uh, building like real relationships where you're helping out fellow mining companies, I think is always valuable, especially like supporting other US-based companies. I think we, yes, it's a zero-sum game, but we can grow in some ways together. Yeah, no, I think we do need to grow. I think that's, at least in the North American Bitcoin mining community, like the oil and gas Bitcoin mining telegram group is where I see a lot of this going on. It feels like there's an urgency to get stuff deployed here in North America just for the long-term health of Bitcoin. Um, and there also seems like a sense, a bit of camaraderie, like, hey, like there's a, a chip on a bunch of people's shoulders because America and North America, Canada is involved in this too, and, and Mexico to some extent have, have really lagged behind in, in terms of Bitcoin mining. And people are like, oh, how do we miss out on this? And we need to catch up. Yeah. I think Canada had like an early boom. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm Canadian, so I want to take pride in my country. But uh, you're seeing now like just the level of uh, infrastructure being built out in the US, it, it's going to very quickly surpass canada like the first real mining was done obviously washington state but also quebec and canada and then you saw huge companies like hud 8 bit farms uh, all build out in canada but i think a lot of the growth now uh, will be in the u.s better energy systems like canada is pretty overly regulated at this point uh, we do have cheap power but uh, the government doesn't let us get it for that cheap so uh, i'm super bullish on on texas um, you know, upstate New York, Nebraska, everywhere, everywhere in the U.S. I think is pushing. Maybe besides yeah. Washington State. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's hope. I mean, all things considered, right now the climate in America, the political climate, particularly. I hope we don't shoot ourselves in the foot in the long run. I thank God we have Texas. Hopefully, Texas is a, a huge hold out and then actually in the Bakken too like North Dakota and South Dakota are pretty pretty states rights oriented as well um, here's to hoping that the government doesn't fuck it up here because like, like you said in the beginning of the podcast that's your biggest worry so what particularly are you worried about from the government and this is something actually we've had conversations about one on one in the past off the record about like whitelisted mining pools. Like I view that as a potential attack vector. Um, would you agree there? Yeah, I actually, I listened to your podcast with, uh, or rabbit hole recap with uh, Matt the other day where you guys uh, talked about this. I think he brought up a good point that as long as there's uh, different pools that are operating on different censorship lists, like maybe China censoring everyone with like a free Hong Kong address or I, I don't know. But U.S. is censoring people with OFAC sanction address. Um, as long as it's not all the same, it doesn't pose existential threat to the network. Like people's transactions will still get included in blocks. It may take uh, a bit of time, but it's going to happen. I, I do think that it's against the ethos of Bitcoin for sure to censor transactions. But uh, unfortunately, that's just like uh, a reality of the U.S. and Canadian regulation system is that um, 
as regulators uh, view the space, it, it may become necessary for some participants to enter. Maybe not everyone, like, you know, a GAM, but maybe a very regulated firm, um, you know, like a, a BlackRock or Fidelity or, or something in that nature, like maybe they'd be uh, forced into a position where they have to use this. So, uh, I, I'm, again, I'm dancing around it. I, I think it's against the ethos of Bitcoin, but I don't think it's an existential threat. Uh, because like it's still going to be uh there's going to be different pools operating with different lists yeah and how much of this would matter in a world where something like coin swap or coin join is more um more commonplace and the uh, chain analysis heuristics are sort of bunk like does it even matter at that point would you even be able to do that yeah i think that benefits it like um then like the idea of these uh, like addresses that are blacklisted, like it would be harder to find them. And so you as a miner wouldn't need to worry about them. Uh, I love that you guys are pushing that angle. I mean, uh, again, I don't want to show uh, shit coins on your, on your uh, podcast, but like, that's one of the reasons I actually generally like Monero is because it has that built in layer of privacy. But uh, I think you, you're doing a good job pushing like these other, um, products that can bring that to Bitcoin. And I think that is important. Uh, the censorship resistance is why Bitcoin is so valuable. Um, every currency is going to have some bad actors in it. I mean, US dollar has terrible actors using US dollar. Um, so it's an unfortunate reality that it's going to be used by some bad people, but it shouldn't let us get away from the fact that Bitcoin is valuable because it is censorship resistant. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, Deutsche Bank, not uh, not KYC AMLing Jeffrey Epstein while he was wire transferring money to to sell sex slaves. Um, Two tier justice system, Ethan. It does it, it rubs me the wrong way? Why are we subjected to all this shit when the pedos get to run get to run wild? That was my pedo rant of the podcast. Um, sorry for making things awkward, but. What uh? What outside of mining do you like to focus on? I mean, obviously, you just touched on privacy a little bit, but in terms of Bitcoin enabling certain economic activity or or new yet use cases from a tech perspective, what what are you paying attention to outside of what you guys are working on in Luxor, um, if you even have time? Yeah, I'd caveat that by saying most of my time is spent in mining. Probably like ninety five percent of my working hours are in mining. It's an industry I love so much, and that's why I left Goldman uh, to go pursue it full time. Uh, it's fascinating from an economics perspective, which I, I think uh, is one of the reasons you you got in with GAM too. Uh, but also, it's just like you have this sense of uh, greater responsibility. Like we do see ourselves as guardians of proof of work networks, um, and, and we have deep conviction in in a lot of these projects. Uh, you know, so we want to protect Bitcoin, um, and so. In some ways, we feel like you know very ethical in our day-to-day -day, uh, business, like we're contributing to the greater good. Um, and yeah, we're just kind of lowly miners that are securing the network, but I, I do think it's a very important part of the overall system. Not to, and then uh, everything else people are building on top, like Lightning Network, all the use cases, that's extremely valuable too. Um, hats off to everyone building that. I think that's uh, critical for the adoption of Bitcoin. Um, so I've been I've been observing those trends and I'm happy with how they're going. But uh, so far, most of my focus has definitely been on mining um, and, and how can we improve the mining layer? 
and have a more secure network. Yeah, this actually brings up a good point, like Lightning Network and other layer, uh, other similar second layer solutions. I've been pushing this this theory that Jevons Paradox can be applied to, to Bitcoin UTXOs and I guess as a mining pool operator, it'd be remiss of me not to ask you about fees in the future. And, and do you worry about the subsidy falling to a point where where it's not profitable for you guys to operate? A lot of people in this uh, example bring up if more institutions come in, it's going to suck up like uh, transaction uh, amounts because either these institutions like Fidelity are long-term holders or they're doing trades off venue like you know, through BlackRock and large institutions are trading there. And that's in a, that's an example where there'd be a decrease in transaction fees, uh, because there's a decrease in transactions on the network. Um, I, I think there's going to be two counters to that one, because of the adoption of those large institutions, there's going to be like more use cases for Bitcoin, and then more people are going to start using it, um, and transacting with it, which will help uh, offset some of that pain that miners feel and then the second is that if they come in in a big way i think we should see a price appreciation i don't want to speculate too much on price but if there is widespread adoption i don't foresee a future where we don't see a large run up in price so hopefully uh, those two will counteract that and really long term like that plays into theme that as block reward decreases transaction fees need to increase on a on a usd basis so that can either be more people transacting on the network or price appreciation for Bitcoin itself. And I'm bullish that, you know, one of those two will happen. I am as well. And that's actually another topic I like to think about a lot. Like at what point in the future does BTC become the unit of account or SATs become the unit of account? And you don't even worry about US dollar profits, but literally just worry about stacking as many SATs as possible. It's actually full disclosure. That's our goal at GAM and our, our our goal is to stack sats we want to sell uh exactly what we need to to cover expenses and then hodl the rest for miners that becomes a reality as soon as uh electricity grids start pricing and and their electricity in bitcoin um as soon as your costs are locked in bitcoin then you don't actually care about uh, your revenue in us dollars like if i got to pay you know 0.001 uh, I'm getting this off by a few decimals here, but one Bitcoin per kilowatt hour, uh, then like, yeah, it's on a, on a Bitcoin basis for sure. That'd be a cool future. Uh, I, I guess think... guys like yourself are, are the ones that are pushing that forward. So, uh, every... Well, I would not be surprised if it happened sooner than people think. Again, just because like of the waste gas alone, like the, the so the opportunity cost that needs to be weighed by these producers is uh, do I compress it into an NGL? Do I flare it? Do I build a pipeline and send it to the grid? And now do I mine Bitcoin? And the data that we've collected from being live for, for a considerable amount of time now, it is becoming glaringly obvious that they can get a lot more bang for their buck mining Bitcoin with that gas as opposed to any of the other alternatives that that i just mentioned and we haven't talked about this internally but just like myself personally like there's got to be a point relatively soon where things click off in their head like oh i don't want to sell this bitcoin like i'm just gonna 
I'll sell you the gas for some Bitcoin. Like, uh, keep the cash out of it. I think that's where like Bitcoin as a unit of account, like you just described, will will start is with these energy producers, and um, they are some oil and gas industry. We, that's what we like to say. Oil and gas industry and Bitcoin go hand in hand very well together because they both represent ruthless capitalism, and part of being a ruthless capitalist is is not having any um, uh, apprehension of, of adopting new technologies, in this case, and new money, and using that as a unit of account. So I think next five to ten years, wouldn't be surprised if, if energy in some parts of the U.S. is being priced in Bitcoin. I love that. An interesting uh, little trick here you could do, and what we used to do at our mining co-location is, like, we had a bunch of technicians that weren't that interested in Bitcoin, but as like a bonus we gave them all like a machine of their own like okay you can't sell this you have to manage it set up your wallet hold your funds like do whatever you want with it um and we just gave them like ownership like you could give some of these oil and gas guys like here's your personal machine i'm gonna write your name on it um like you have to like set up your bitcoin wallet like start stacking sats and like it's on us that type of thing and like even one machine i think is enough to get people interested and engaged and that's how a lot of like people get into crypto is through mining so uh i think it's like it's gonna be a really nice onboarding uh into bitcoin in general through mining yeah now it's actually funny my uncle um he's been like big uh computer builder his whole life and that's how he he's gotten in he like with the even out even without me um sort of nudging him towards bitcoin just like mining he had a bunch of gpus sitting around plugged them in and he's been hooked for for a few years now and whenever uh, i see him he'll like show me his he, he i think he points his gpus at nice hash or something like that he's like look how many sats i stacked this month I'm like boss i love that uh, yeah ah it's been a fascinating conversation have you heard anything about the three gorges dam was that just some fud I, I've seen some good write-ups. I think uh, Ben uh, from BitFarms, Ben Ganyan, uh had a really nice post in the oil and gas group covering it. I think uh, I'd agree with him that the Chinese government uh, will try everything not to let this like turn into a disaster. So it's an interesting development to watch, but uh, I think they'll protect it. Has anybody figured out the potential amount of hash rate that's in that flood flood zone yet? Or... I've seen estimates that it's in like double digit exa hash, uh, which isn't surprising, but uh, I don't think uh, anyone's actually gone through and, and done it for real. You'd probably have to talk to someone like Thomas from F2 Pool, uh, who has like his, like, he knows where all these farms are located and probably been to visit them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ah, man, it's a crazy world. Bitcoin mining getting more sophisticated but there's still a lot of uh a lot of and that's the way it should be you shouldn't really know where all this hash rate is physically located down to a granular like gps coordinate level yeah on the topic of uh f2 pool and, and other pools I, I better run here pretty quickly or else they're going to steal all of our miners <laughs> uh, all right as we speak I'm sorry probably poaching them all <laughs> well i'm um i'm sorry for pushing this a half hour thank you for being flexible there and um, thanks for your time, dude. This has been a fascinating conversation, I think. 
everybody's going to walk away from this uh, being a lot smarter when it comes to Bitcoin mining. No, th- thanks for having me on. Yeah, this was uh, really fun. Yeah. Do you have a final note or where can we find you for the freaks out there? Yeah. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Vera. Um, and if you want, you can check out our new data website, uh, hashrateindex.com. So uh, we're, as we, as we said earlier, like really trying to build it based on users' needs and, and wishes. So if you have an idea on how to improve it or you want to see some cool new data set, just ping me and we can try and add it. So, yeah, I appreciate all the support. Bang, bang. Thank you for doing what you do. I'm sure this won't be our last conversation on air. Um, yeah. Go uh, go make sure that your, your hash rate isn't getting stolen from under you. <laughs> Thanks, Marty. Thank you. Peace and love, day. freaks. You too.